This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From BBC Science Focus, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Daniel Bennett, the magazine's editor, and today we're talking about what happens when humans become prey. Now, the idea of a person being preyed upon by a large predator might sound like something we would have left in our distant past, but increasingly, Large carnivores like lions, tigers and crocodiles find themselves living right alongside humans. To explain what happens when these two worlds collide, I'm joined by Adam Hart, an ecologist and BBC broadcaster. And his new book, The Deadly Balance, explores how conservation has to protect both humans and endangered predators when it comes to life on an increasingly crowded planet. The book called The Deadly Balance and within it it's essentially just exploring this kind of tension between humans and predators in places where they kind of clash i just wondered is this something that's on the rise now because it it definitely sounds you know when i talk about predators preying on humans it sounds like something from a very very distant past but is it something that's becoming more common yeah, it seems to be in some areas with uh, with some species. So it's a, it's a complex pattern across the world. Um, but of course, we are starting to see some conservation success stories. I mean, we, we're always we, we we tend to focus a lot on doom and gloom, and we we tend to focus less so on conservation successes actually, which is perhaps a, a communication mistake. But what we've seen in some parts of the world is actually a, a resurgence of some predator numbers. So India is a good example. We've seen um, in India and Nepal, for example, over the last decade or so, tiger numbers have doubled which is good news. We've seen um, leopard numbers, particularly in urban areas of, of, of India, have, have risen. Um, and this is a wonderful story if you're focusing on the animals. But of course, what we have in many parts of the world now is, um, is a human population that's somewhat different than it was, say, 200 years ago. And when you get the rise of predators, when you get predator resurgence and, and increase in numbers, inevitably, what happens is that you start to get this, this interface between sort of people and the wild, if you like, tends to break down a little. And you tend to get much more um, interactions between people. So, I mean, tigers are a good example. 
there in the, the forests of India. Uh, but as they become more numerous, young males, for example, get kicked out or they get made more marginal in those territorial areas. And, and they tend to be areas which, instead of being nice, connected forests that allow them to move into new territories, tend to be butted up against human settlements. And these sorts of, of juxtapositions, if you like, are what can cause increased conflict. So we are sharing uh, of the planet. We are much more numerous than we have been at any point in the past. Uh, we are fragmenting and removing habitat. And if we end up with increased predator numbers, then inevitably we're going to in end up with these increased levels of conflict. I mean, crocodiles are another interesting example. We tend to abuse watercourses quite badly and extract water and things. And that can concentrate animals in particular areas. So the way that we're using land, our patterns across the land, our conservation successes or failures, all of those patterns sort of come together to create and underlie some of these conflicts. And yeah, in some parts of the world, those those conflicts are becoming greater um, as, as some of these predators increase in numbers or as our patterns and their patterns change. So that's really fascinating because perhaps it was cliche thinking or, you know, ignorant to my part, but I, I, I suppose I would have thought the, the image I get when I think about, you know, a tiger or a lion or even a crocodile sort of attacking a human is, is one of a kind of a beleaguered animal, perhaps uh, desperate and then encroaching on human into human spaces. Is, is that a, a kind of a bit of a naive sort of way of thinking about it? It can be part of the picture, and certainly historically, uh, in India, for example, with some of the tigers that were became quite famous for their level of of human predation, the injury hypothesis, if you like, the idea that they were somehow weakened, does seem to hold some water. And there are certainly some examples in the modern day where um, predatory attacks by large predators have been instigated and, and probably motivated by the fact the animal is weak. So um, a guy was attacked, and a predatory attack, actually a chap that I'd interviewed about a, a year before, was attacked and killed by a lion that was in a very bad way, um, very moth-eaten kind of creature on its last legs. And and it's easy and tempting to think, well, we're so weak and, and whatever, you know, we're, we're easy prey. And certainly that can be the case. But actually what we see in a lot of attacks is not that. There's also uh, perfectly healthy, perfectly normal, perfectly uh, normally behaving predators that are seeing us very much as part of their predatory you know the prey landscape if you like we are we're the right size for them we're in the right place and so yeah in many cases they will see us as as, as a target I, I was speaking to someone in india recently and quite an interesting kind of he's got quite an interesting perspective on it he's sort of saying that in the indian forests now what you've got is a sort of a generation of tigers uh, that is that's increased in number and that has no reason to fear humans in the past, when tigers, you know, sort of 100 years ago, um, tigers were being actively persecuted by people, which, of course, led to their decline. They were being hunted and, and killed. Uh, tigers were much more secretive and much more wary of people. And so you've got this generation of tigers that has no re real reason to fear us. And on top of that, you've actually got a generation of people who haven't been used to living in an environment where there's large numbers of tigers, as they would have been perhaps 200 years ago or 100 years ago. And and so they've lost the sort of ability and the skills, if you like, to, to interact with them and to avoid them and so on. So you've got this sort of both sides of the balance, if you like, are finding new ground. And unfortunately, very often this ends badly for both parties because humans get killed. And as a consequence of that, and the fear that that generates, predators get killed and we end up back at square one. And that's why it's so important actually to find this balance and to find out and to work out ways that we can live together with predators in the landscape. 
because if we don't, we're, we are going to end up, I think, in, in landscapes where we have sort of national park type setups, if you like, areas where predators are and then everywhere else. Um, and that's an important thing to point out as well. A lot, a lot of what we kind of rather arrogantly, I think, think of as habitat, people are calling home. These tigers in India, for example, are living in forests that people live in and use for their natural resources. The, ti- the lions that live in, in Southern Africa, well, many of them are in national parks, but a lot of them aren't. And a lot of them are roaming around the landscape where people also live. And so finding, and crocodiles are a great example, they're found in, in the Nile crocodiles found in practically, it's a safe, it's a, a, a reasonable assumption and certainly a good working assumption that if it's a, bo- a body of water in southern, you know, sub-Saharan Africa probably contains Nile crocodiles. So, yeah, when we've got predators in the landscape where people also live, we must find ways for us to live together or ultimately it will end badly for the predators because we have the ability, as we've seen, sadly, to really, really hammer these animals and, and reduce their numbers to, to virtually nothing. So we want to avoid that, but we have to think about people if we're going to do that. Mm. And it's interesting because you you go to you know to some 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 great lengths to sort of give the reader a sense of the scale of this, like through the numbers involved. Um, you know how many attacks. You know, in some cases there are hundreds, sometimes thousands. But I get the sense that that for you that doesn't really tell the tell the story here, and I wondered if what 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 are you able to give a sense of what it's like to live alongside a predator? You know, if you're in one of these places, or Tanzania is one um, that you mentioned on the side of the lines we talked about, India, is it something that most people in these communities think about day to day that they have to be mindful that if they are in the wrong place in the wrong time that you know they're very much their life is at risk yeah it's, it's a really interesting one when you start getting into the numbers um because once we deal with with either large numbers or sort of small numbers people will discount them or ignore them or, or not really regard them and, and yeah i think the first point with with numbers is that we can talk about the numbers of of people that are, are killed or attacked for example but then we start thinking well it's a big country and there's lots of people so probabilistically your chances and so on but but actually attacks don't happen evenly across the population what we see is that certain communities particularly are far more prone to being um, attacked by predators than others which which is largely related actually to being poor Um, so in tanzania it's a very good example we've got we've got so many attacks in Tanzania, actually, that it's possible to start analysing some of the factors that go into making people vulnerable. And particular factors are things like having to sleep at night in your crop to protect them from crop raiding pigs, having to walk to your crops rather than being able to travel in a vehicle or living alongside them, um, having to having to cross rivers, um, having to defecate outside, not having those sorts of facilities, living in very flimsy dwellings. And, and all of these sort of triangulate down, and it's the same for, for tigers, actually, and, and crocodiles as well triangulate down to to the fact that being poor and living in rural areas is, is definitely putting you more at risk. And there have been a number of studies that have been done looking at people's attitudes towards um, towards predators. And, and there was one done in, in Tanzania where it showed that um, almost 70% of people um, lived in fear, ha- had a an existential fear of being killed and eaten by a lion. Now, when it's balanced against the percentage of the probability of that actually happening, that fear would seem to be, you know, out of out of kilter, but but that's not the way that we process and deal with with fear, particularly fear of sort of 
you know, dying, but 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 also dying in in terrible ways. And I, I'm always thinking back when I think of these percentages back to sort of the COVID time, um, when it was really rampant and people were talking about vaccinations and the first vaccinations came out. I actually did, and I, I talk about it in the book. I did a uh, a COVID risk analysis um, online. And, you know, I have no risk factors to die of COVID. And, and the only thing really against me is my age because I'm 48 and that makes me more vulnerable than being, you know, 40 or whatever. But but the chances of me actually dying from contracting COVID were very, very small indeed. Um, and in fact, not dissimilar to the chances of being um, attacked and eaten by a lion, um, according to some of the studies. And yet the second I got that text message through, literally, ping, I was online booking my COVID vaccination. You know, the way that we process risk is very different. And when when you do surveys and you look at the research done from people that live alongside these predators, you realize that living in fear like that is a huge burden. You know, it's a sublethal burden of this. I mean, there's lot, lots of other similar things as well. Um, hyenas, spotted hyenas, when they attack humans, which they do for predatory reasons. Uh, particularly in places like Zimbabwe and Zambia, they, they have a tendency to attack the face and neck. And if people survive those attacks, which they may do if there's people around to protect them and help them, um, they're usually very badly facially disfigured. Um, the same with, with crocodiles can leave the most horrendous scars, but they're usually covered. But facial disfigurement um, carries with it an enormous stigma in you know, most societies, if we're being honest. There are other sublethal effects. In, in, in India, for example, in the Sundarbans region, which is on the border with Bangladesh, historically and in the present day a really focused area of tiger human conflict and, and tiger attacks i think some estimates suggest that there's a tiger related fatality every 12 days or so in this region and the people there have all kinds of cultural links with the forest and there's a particular deity that they uh, worship to protect them when they're in the forest and the reason why they worship this deity is that her arch nemesis um, comes to earth in the form of a tiger and so they believe by venerating the, the goddess, they'll protect themselves against the tiger. Well, if someone is attacked by a tiger, and that's most commonly an older man, so probably the breadwinner or patriarch of the family, his family are, are deemed to have done something wrong. They must have offended the goddess. He must have offended the goddess. And, and you can end up with all kinds of ostracization. And the phenomenon there of, of the tiger widow, where um, widows of people that have been attacked and eaten and killed by tigers are, are monstrously ostracized from society. Um, they're often the victims of physical and, and sexual abuse and all kinds of other things. So there are lots of, of sub-lethal effects as well that, that ramify through societies. You know, when when someone is killed by a predator, often I mean, if we take the examples of sort of lions, tigers, and crocodiles, which which probably are the most you know the top three, if you like, uh, many of their victims will be people who are working in the regions where they these animals live. So going to the forest to collect firewood or to hunt or fish, being on rivers and watercourses, washing clothes and so on. And what that means is that quite often victims are, you know, breadwinners of a family or leaders of a family. And when they are taken away, you know, that, that has ramifications through the whole community. If children are taken, obviously that that's its own separate, you know, dreadful outcome too. So these are community uh, community costs that are born um so when we see these tiger numbers increasing we're like yeah that's amazing yes it is it's a conservation success story but people on the ground may be thinking somewhat differently and i think that's one of the key points of the book really is that we need to develop some empathy and understanding of what it's like to live alongside what we would consider to be a conservation success because if we don't i think we're gonna we're gonna struggle to help with the right solutions to to make that kind of balance work 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. I wondered when I was looking through the book and, and even hearing you talk then about the kind of the very human sort of grisly and visceral nature of it at times, what pulled you uh, in the direction of this subject and this area? Because, uh, you know, you've had a long career as a conservationist and, and in biology. And I just wondered if there was, you know, as well, I know you, you mentioned in the book that you have these kind of different groups uh, that you get pings uh, when there's been an attack, and you know there can be quite disturbing images. And I just wondered, was there a was there a story, or was was there a a kind of moment in your career where it kind of drew your attention to this, or any you know a particular a particular bit of research, or a, a, just an occurrence? Yeah, so I mean, I've been I've been going down to sort of Southern Africa and 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 particularly South Africa for the last well more than a quite a bit more than a decade now actually doing um research and, and involving involving myself with various different things in in those areas and and through conversations there it became quite clear that that the way that we view predators is not necessarily aligned with the way that that others might view them so i mean if, if you go to southern africa in areas where there's lions for example every tourist there everybody including me you know everybody wants to see a lion they're incredible but of course, if if you're speaking to people who work or are those people that live alongside them, then they will have stories to tell about people that have been attacked by lions, close shaves with lions, and so on. So I started hearing those kind of stories a little bit. Uh, I had a conversation actually with uh, someone called Amy Dickman, who is a um, she's the head of Wild Crew and has spent most of her life studying lions. And she happened to mention some stories about some lion conflict and things that was happening in Tanzania and in particular stories of lions entering people's um, dwellings at night and eating them and attacking drunks and eating them and and actually singling out um, drunk people and and I had the same sort of view I think that a lot of people would have had that well these attacks you know they're incredibly rare and they're mostly when animals are cornered or you know that the sick animal hypothesis and, and you know she's sort of said well no that's not that's not what's happening at all and so I started reading around a bit more about that and then um, spoke to uh, people at Radio 4 and said actually there's quite a lot of this going on um, I started speaking to Rajiv Matthew in India who's trying to collate some of the attack figures there for things like tigers and lions, uh, tigers and leopards, well, and lions actually in parts of India. And, you know, suggested that there might be might be a, a documentary in this and something we could look at because this notion of sort of, if you like, man-eating tigers and man-eating lions, we're, we're kind of thinking back, we're harking back to things like the Savo Railway um, and the late 1800s and Jim Corbett in the early 1900s, where we're thinking of them as issues of the past. And... You know, they're very much issues of the, of the present. So so that that was commissioned. It was called On the Menu, which actually I think is a title I probably wouldn't be happy with now. Um, I think it, it has a certain flippancy about it that I don't think is particularly um, helpful. But, yeah, in that program, we started to explore some of these things. And it was really from talking to, to Amy, talking to Regime, and talking to other people that, that I thought, you know, this is, this is something that I think we need to explore a bit more because it's not just a sort of, oh, isn't it? Isn't it weird and wonderful in a way, you know, in inverted commas, we still live in a world where, you know, predators are, you know, we're not the top top predator. Well, actually, no, that, that's not the way to look at it. We are 
living in a world where increasingly wanting to share, or at least from a conservation perspective, trying to share with wildlife. But some of that wildlife is existentially dangerous to us. It can kill us. And it's not just like being killed by a, a, a venomous snake, for example. Um, you get killed by a venomous snake, it almost certainly is a defensive attack. may not have been your fault, in inverted commas, right? It, it may have just been an unfortunate accident, but it's happened. You're dead, yes, probably quite horribly, but it's very different, viscerally different, I think, to the notion of being stalked, killed, and eaten by by a large predator. And that is a very different thing and something that unfortunately tends to release very different behavior in humans. I mean, people persecute venomous snakes um, all over the world, but but the persecution of predators has really um, been something else over the last over the last few centuries. And they're probably actually much longer in well, definitely much longer when we look at persecution of things like wolves in Europe and so on. So, you know, these these sorts of these sorts of, of questions and this sort of. Uh, interaction, I suppose, if you want to call it that way, between predators and humans has a really key place, I think, to play in in the modern conservation narrative, right? The way we think about how we want to conserve the world. Because of the top, uh, someone did a fantastic study of the, the the most charismatic animals, basically, that looked at movies and advertising and all this kind of stuff. Predators occupy six of the top 10 places, right? We love predators. <laughs> but we very often have a very uh, slim view, if you like, a very shallow view of, of what they're really about. And, and that was really the sort of the driver behind writing this book really was just to try and introduce people to to the reality of them and to, and to think much more deeply about, about how we can try and resolve some of these conflicts and, and achieve conservation. Because the number of people I've spoken to recently who have either read the book or I'm speaking about the book and, and they'll come up to me and say, I never really realized how important it was to include communities. I didn't really think about people in conservation. And you think, well, why would you? Because I've never seen a documentary on television really to do with nature or, or anything where there's people. People are cast as villains, the poachers, the, the farmers encroaching on land. You know, infrastructure like pylons and power cables and the notion that people live in habitat and that animals can live in our homes. So I think people in the UK, well, that's simply not the case, right? Um, it, it seems like a very strange thing. We, we go and look at wildlife. Yeah, we'll wander down to the local nature reserve with its fence around the outside and its car park. Well, that's not the world I'd like. <laughs> I've been very fortunate to see parts of the world where that's not the case. But if we don't consider the needs of people in the way we think about these things, we, we won't have those places in the future. And that would be a great shame, I think. And is is that reflected also in the sort of at the coal face of conservation? I totally agree that you don't see these sort of, you know, the humans in the con- in the in the store in the conservation stories that we see on our TVs. We don't often address the human place within that and there's even you know there's some quite famous uh you know the, the, the gorillas and the, the pygmies and the congos where uh that they you know they end up wiping out huge numbers of the pygmies there but i just wondered is is are the human communities sometimes forgotten even at the coalface of conservation in these you know when you're going out to africa and you're working with the people there who are trying to manage these populations and look after them it, like perhaps not the the people on the field but at the higher levels are, are they thinking about it at a more holistic sort of scale and level i think lots of people are yes i think not everyone is but lots of people are what what i find interesting is that you know when you when you look at sort of 
if you like big conservation organizations big ngos and charities and so on and, and the big the big campaigns they're they're very very focused around animals um, animals are front and center but if you dig deeper into what they're doing it's all about communities and it's all about people there's lots and lots of really cool stuff going on but but obviously what they don't feel, and I think they're probably right, but I think it becomes a horribly sort of self-reinforcing spiral, is that they don't feel that those stories can be put front and centre because people won't engage with them. And they're right, people won't engage with them because they don't realise that they need to be front and centre. But people will sort of look at a tiger or a lion and say, oh, I need to save this animal. Um, and that that is a very strange view, a very very warped view, you could, you could say, but also a view that's kind of inevitable given the way that, that wildlife has been depicted over the last half century or more. Um, and I think that's that's really quite interesting that that organisations don't feel that they can put those things front and centre. I've had conversations before with people actually fairly recently in Namibia where they've said, well, you know, people in the UK, you, you value animals' lives more than you value humans' lives. And that is an incredibly difficult um, statement to counter because all the evidence most definitely points that way. It's always about conserving animals. I, I spent a, a wonderful few days with a, um, a conservationist down in Namibia at the beginning of last year. We, we were, I was down there for a couple of weeks and we were driving around with her for a few days and we spoke about conservation almost literally nonstop. You know, it was a wonderful, wonderful sort of time for, for someone like me who was desperate, you know, really wanting to sort of squeeze every last last piece of knowledge and experience from, from, from the people that I met. But we spoke about road grading and water and electricity companies. We spoke about access rights. We spoke about post-apartheid politics, about the rights of women, about language clusters and groups, um, about so many things about access to shops about medical care about covid about compensation schemes for crop damage we never spoke about animals unless we saw one out of the window in which case oh there's a giraffe and we talk about giraffes for a bit because they're cool but but everything else was non-stop conservation but animals were very much not front and center um, because what they've learned in in Namibia, well, they need to learn it. They knew it already because they're very successful at doing it. You know what what they what, what they're doing in Namibia is is putting communities front and centre, and and that that has worked very well. And you know in Nepal, for example, where we've seen a doubling of tiger numbers, first range country to do that. Well, the the community forestry program was a major part of the success of the conservation um, strategy of Nepal, putting people in charge of their resources, allowing communities to work out what they can extract sustainably, how they can develop wildlife, you know, putting, putting control into their, into their hands rather than dictating. And I think we're seeing these programs around the world, but we're not necessarily seeing them on our screens. We're not thinking about their success and celebrating them on the page. Um, what we're hearing is a lot of doom and gloom, and that's you know, inevitably right, but we do need to hear more about the success, and we definitely need to hear more about the realities of conservation rather than yeah, bluntly seeing actors and TV presenters and comedians and things sort of going out to some place in Africa because it's always Africa and driving around in a nice shiny new land cruiser and looking wistfully in the distance at lions with no humans in view apart from you know the the guide who's probably not even named which is a common trope um, and then wandering back to some animal orphanage where animals with zero conservation value, because they're not part of a breeding population anymore, they're really just a, a sink now uh, of funds that are being bottle-fed by, by said celebrity, um, 
telling us all how we should be doing more and donating more money to help conservation. And you think, I haven't seen any conservation whatsoever in the last hour. Do, do you think, you know, to play their, to, to sort of channel what those people who make these beautiful documentaries, who I suspect will actually agree with you in terms of... I, I've, I've spoken to several of them, and they do. <laughs> But equally, I love watching those documentaries too, right? So, it's, yeah, to channel that side of the argument, you know, the nurseries are what gets tugs at the heartstrings and gets people on the phone. Do you think actually people would respond to seeing, as you as you said, like as conservationists, you go out there and you talk about everything else other than the animal, and we've never. I mean, I, I think I've seen a couple. But we've almost never seen a documentary that actually shows the nitty gritty of what conservation is. But do you do you think we're we're almost doing an injustice to the public by assuming that wouldn't they wouldn't be interested in that and they wouldn't it wouldn't motivate them? I hundred percent I think so because you know I, I take groups of people I mean not just students but sort of groups of private individuals um, to to various different places over the last sort of um, well the last twenty years actually and and. In all cases, I've found people to be far more interested in the nitty gritty. Everybody wants to go and see see the animals, right? And I'll take groups down to sort of South Africa or whatever, and, and make sure that we go to certain places where we've got good chances to see them because I want to see them, these things too, right? And but what they're they're really interested in all sorts of stuff. And before you know it, you know you're driving out driving out of some place and you're standing by the side of a fence line, you know, giving a mini lecture on on the problems of, of extended land tenure or, or it, more importantly insecure land tenure on developing wildlife areas and the influence of um, overgrazing and the problems of, of local politics in, in doing that and you're talking about whether or not uh, how expensive 18 wire stock fence is and how that becomes problematic keeping certain species in certain areas and then you're talking about the problems of fences themselves and fragmentation but they can protect at the same time and you know before you've even managed to get back in the vehicle someone's asked you what something is and you go well actually this is part of a road grading program because we need access to these areas and suddenly you're off on a, and i found that people are absolutely fascinated by this stuff they want to see the nuts and bolts. And then, you know, you'll go, oh, well, if you're interested in that, we should go and meet this person. And you'll go and meet someone who's, you know, just come back from uh, doing some dehorning of rhino. And before you know, you're talking about that as a conservation intervention. And, and then someone wonders, oh, well, you know, how can we get, what's this damn wall all about? You know, and then you go, well, actually, you know, this is about building water holes, but even that comes at a cost. And then you're discussing salt licks. And yeah, people are so interested in these things when they're there because they can see them in front of them. Now, I don't think it would be that difficult to get those stories across and to get people interested in ideas about, you know, land and and conservation in, in the, the conservation stuff that all of us as conservation scientists talk about all the time. All you know, none of these things are, I, I'm not sort of sort of suddenly discovered all these things. These are mainstream conservation issues, right? You pull down any conservation textbook, it's gonna talk about these things. But we don't see them and we don't hear them we don't think about about conflicts and tensions in conservation and and how we can resolve them and how you can have i'll give you an example i was in um south africa in november um uh, near the kruger national park actually just outside of it we were staying in a place that had a big golf course now golf's not my sport it's a it's a good walk ruined in a way although i do enjoy thwacking a ball around at the pigeon putt sometimes um and i've been known to be all right at it but you know it's not it's not my bag right normally golf courses are dreadful this golf course was fantastic. And the reason why it had one of the richest 
collections of birds living there the f- sort of bird fauna there was unbelievable we, we took a two-hour walk around there and, and saw dozens and dozens of species including many that we hadn't seen before things like there's some incredible um, paradise fly catches and all kinds of stuff and the reason why is that the people that were managing that area had two people to please they had people that were interested in wildlife who were staying there because it's near to Kruger National Park and they had people that liked to play golf who were staying there because they liked to play golf. And they were managing this place for both. And so consequently, they had hippos and crocodiles in the watercourses. They were gently and very nicely fenced off in areas to prevent them from coming up and scaring people that were filling in their golf carts, right? <laughs> but they're there living perfectly naturally. They're just being very slightly controlled so that they don't cause a conflict. They were planting trees and keeping groves and managing uh, wetland areas so that the bird life was absolutely fantastic but guess what it also provides a beautiful scenic backdrop for people playing golf and some interesting natural hazards it is possible to have things that resolve conflict to, to manage land in such a way okay it's not as amazing as it would be as pristine habitat but it's a hell of a lot better than it would be as a shopping center which is what was being built next door you know, this, these types of, of things, we need, to, we need to be looking at them much more maturely rather than just sort of standing in the sidelines and throwing fruit about everything. Um, you know, let's think, of, let's think of ways around it. Our, our brain, let's let, let be under no illusion about it. It's our fabulous intellect that's got us into this problem, right? <laughs> our ability to manipulate the environment around us, our desire and quest for novelty, right, and, in, and innovation. That's what's got us here with all of our petrol-guzzling cars and monstrous digging lorries and desire to mine and our population expansion and stuff but it's our brains that will get us out and, and we we are more than capable of thinking of these solutions if we allow ourselves to and if there's political will to support them but ultimately that comes from people's will and, and if people don't know about this and they don't realize these struggles they can't politicize them because they're they're unaware of them and and i think th- this type of thinking it's very, very easy to, to just not engage with. And you know, we, need to, we, need, we need to be getting more messages out there, I guess. And, you know, okay, I'm trying with my book, but, you know, with the best will in the world, that's not going to be read by a whole bunch of people, <laughs> you know, oh, that it was. I, I, could, I could retire and, and uh, devote my life fully to the topic, right? But the reality is that we need much more bigger picture stuff, big, bigger media things, bigger, bigger things with much more reach. Um, that can actually say to people, look, this is this is how we need to go. That was Adam Hart there talking about conservation in action. If you'd like to find out more about the clash of predators and people in an increasingly crowded world, do check out Adam's book, The Deadly Balance, which is on sale now and published by Bloomsbury Sigma. He also presents Tooth and Claw for the BBC's World Service, which explores the conservation challenges facing the planet's most fearsome predators. You can find that on BBC Sounds. Thank you for listening. The Instant Genius podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as your preferred app stores. Alternatively, do come find us online at sciencefocus.com. Thank you.